day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode, we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists, and people who just have an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me this episode of Sea Creatures Podcast is Jack Breeden, and we're going to talk all about nudibranchs. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Like, why did you pick nudibranchs? Well, firstly, I have to admit it's kind of cheating because it's not a sea creature. Nudibranchs is an entire group. It's like saying, oh, what's your favourite animal? And just saying birds in general. (laughs) You know, there's lots of species. I love them just because they're really unique and they have some of the most amazing diversity of any marine creature. You're familiar with them. We dive with them all the time, places like Blairgowrie and Rye. Melbourne is a great spot for them. But nudibranchs are actually found in every marine environment right from you know the absolute tropics of the tropics in indonesia down to antarctica and northern hemisphere right up to ports one of the best places to see nudibranchs is actually in man-made environments which is really cool and it makes them one of the easiest things to see if you get your eye into them (laughs) so they're everywhere but what is so if you've never heard of a nudibranch before what are they give us a good description of them A nudibranch, it sounds lame, it is essentially a sea slug, or more accurately, a snail that has lost their shell. In fact, when they're in their larval phase, once they're just born, they go up into the water column and join the plankton for the first part of their life, they still have a shell. It's not until they mature into adulthood that they ditch their shell. And that's where their name comes from. So a snail's lungs, or its gills, are nice and protected up in its shell, but a nudibranch, losing that, has its gills exposed, hence nudibranch. It literally means naked lungs. So branchials like your lungs and nudie being naked. Naked sea slug, I like it. Yeah, and the cool thing about them, the reason that they're so diverse is because they are naked snails, which makes them really vulnerable as animals. They have really, really intense selection pressure from predators. If you're a small bite-sized mollusk, I mean, we love eating mollusks. Shellfish is a great thing. So do fish. They love eating mollusks. So nudibranchs have this really high selection on them which and really short generation times, which means that they evolve super quickly into really diverse body forms and methods of protecting themselves. So, I mean, that kind of explains why there are so many different species and all over because they have this, like, evolutionary push to evolve. But like what's, so we're talking like size. So I know nudibranchs go from like a couple of millimetres up to like almost 60 centimetres, I believe, don't they? Yeah. So nudibranchs, my favourite nudibranchs are the really, really, really small ones, just because I always feel really proud of myself for seeing them. But they (laughs) range right up to things like the famous Spanish dancer, which can get up to a metre in length. They're absolutely huge, huge range of animals. And yeah, they occupy pretty much every habitat. If there is something that they can eat if there's a place that they can live, you can bet that there is a nudibranch living there. And they're actually um, carnivorous, I believe, aren't they? Or like they eat each other or anything living like that's animal. Yeah, so nudibranchs, well, they'll try and eat anything. A lot of them are carnivorous. A lot of them prey on small crustaceans. So although you think of crabs and shrimps and things as being able to move a lot faster than snails, nudibranchs just plod along until they run into one and then grab it. 
Some nudibranchs will eat other nudibranchs, which is quite vicious. Um, but right down the food chain, they eat sea squirts, they eat algae, some of them eat corals. And this is what actually makes nudibranchs a really useful scientific tool. So my fish professor at uni famously said they're com completely useless decorations on the reef. It was his prime example of how biodiversity is not all it's cracked up to be. But although ecologically speaking, they don't serve much of a role, they're just there, they munch a couple of things, they can actually be used as a diagnostic tool. So as climate change increases water temperature, tropical species move in Australia, they move south down the coast. So this, this project, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it, Matt, called the Sea Slug Census. It's run by Southern Cross University and in Victoria, the VNPA. And it basically encourages people to go out, look for nudibranchs, photograph them and send them in. There's usually competitions for best photos or most species found. It's lots of fun. But the idea of this is you get an idea of what species occur in an area. And if you keep doing it regularly, you'll start seeing species that you haven't seen before. Usually they're coming from up north. And if you see a nudibranch, they're brightly colored animals, so they're quite easy to spot. You can probably bet that its food source is also occurring in that area. So it's a really good way of mapping change to environments that would otherwise go undetected. So if you have a really bright uh, orange spotted nudibranch that you find in the tropics that feeds on a particular ascidian, then if you find it somewhere in southern New South Wales, grown to an adult, you can bet that that particular ascidian is also occupying that environment and probably a whole bunch of other organisms that you can't see have moved further south. Oh, wow. So it's actually, I, I didn't realise that nudibranchs, I, I knew about the sea slug census, but I never realised it could be such a, a good indicator of climate change and like animal movements and even like movements off ships with biofat, like that drop different animals in different ports and so forth from their bilge water, which is pretty crazy. So you'd mentioned too, like the colors, what is the craziest color you've seen on a nudibranch? Oh, almost every nudibranch is crazier than the next. Uh, the, the ones that are absolutely insane to look at are the super cryptic ones. So these ones don't advertise their presence. They try and hide. Some of them are almost completely transparent. Like the only way you'll spot them is if they've got detritus or sand stuck to their bodies because the rest of their body is completely transparent. They're invisible uh, right up to the ones that are so ornately decorated to match their environment that you would mistake them for algae unless someone points it out to you and says, that's a sea slug. But on the other side of the coin, you get all these amazing bright colors right from rainbow sea slugs to iridescent sea slugs. And, uh, even bioluminescent ones that glow. And the reason is, is that these ones are advertising their presence. They say, look, I'm here because they're actually really toxic. I always call nudibranchs the uh, greatest thieves of the sea. Most of them don't produce any toxins or any protective chemicals or stinging cells themselves. They're actually most, a lot of sea slugs are really plain little white things. They get their toxicity or their stinging from their food. So probably the most famous example of this is the Glaucus nudibranchs. If you're from New South Wales, you've probably seen these little blue things washed up on the beach. They live way out at sea where there's no sea floor to attach to. They float on the surface and they eat uh, jellyfish. They particularly love to eat things like the blue bottle jellyfish, which we all know is a really nasty stinging jellyfish. 
if you've ever encountered one. Uh, some people get hospitalized by these things, but this tiny little blue nudibranch eats them. And then rather than just being able to digest or deal with those stinging cells, it steals them. So it's able to munch down on the tentacles of this jellyfish, keep the stinging cells from firing. They go off like little, little uh, harpoons, but the uh, nudibranch stop them from firing. They take the cells and then they put them in their own skin so that then they sting like a blue bottle. They basically wow. feed on these animals, these poor jellyfish, and then steal their defense mechanism for themselves, which is crazy. And lots of other nudibranchs do it. They toxic uh, sponges, take the chemicals from those toxic sponges and incorporate it into their own bodies. They take the color, the pigment from um, the sponges or the acidians that they're eating so that they match their environment. Uh, you're probably familiar with the... Uh, uh, what is it? Verconus, Verconus. Yeah. Uh, it's this bright pink thing uh, with a really serrated margin. It looks exactly like the sponge that it eats, but it's actually a white nudibranch. It gets its color entirely from its food. It steals it so it doesn't have to produce it itself. Uh, uh, really cool defense mechanism. Yeah, it's just crazy because I was reading that some of them, like they absorb that color not even as a toxin to kill whatever eats them, just to make them quite untasty. So fish find them and go, oh, this doesn't look that great. It's like, kind of like an off meat, I guess. Yeah, uh, that's quite a common thing in the marine environment. Soft corals do it. Rather than actually being toxic, they make themselves unpalatable. It's the same thing like a, that a chili does. So a, a chili plant makes its fruit unpalatable to predators, which are herbivores so that we don't go munching on their seeds and stopping them from reproducing. They make their food, they make their fruit really spicy. Unfortunately for them, humans decided that they really like spicy things. So <laughs> we tend to eat them. Most animals will take a bite of a chili and go, Oh, that's disgusting. It's not toxic. It won't kill the animal. It just tastes really bad. And so nudibranchs do that too. They take the antifeedant chemicals out of their food and uh, reuse that. Yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, like, to think that all the colours are just generated from other colours on the reef, which, or like, you know, in sponge gardens and so forth. Going, sorry, going a step further there, some nudibranchs are even more sneaky, and they steal the defence mechanism of other nudibranchs by mimicking, mimicking them. So it's what we call uh, mimicry rings, where you have a nudibranch that advertises its presence as being toxic, it has bright colours to say, look, I'm here, I'm poisonous, don't eat me. So fish, the way that usually works is a fish will eat one of those nudibranchs when it's young, decide that it's disgusting, spit it out and recognise it by its colour. So that's its defence mechanism. And then collectively, if they all show the same colour, then the fish all learn from a really young age, don't eat them. And so they can mm. all survive. But some nudibranchs worked out uh, that if they mimic those colour patterns, if they look like the toxic nudibranch, then the fish will recognize them and go, oh, I don't want to eat that one, despite them having absolutely no other defense mechanism whatsoever. And it's called a ring because it's this cyclic process where the more nudibranchs that mimic a toxic one, the worse it is for a toxic nudibranch because you get fish that will take a chance, eat one of the ones that looks like the toxic nudibranch but isn't a toxic nudibranch, and decide that it's delicious. And so then they go and eat the toxic ones before working out, oh, not all of them are something I should eat. <laughs> and so 
the toxic nudibranchs evolve bright colors to move away from the ones mimicking them. So the ones that survive more are the ones that look different to the ones mimicking them. But then the mimic ones, the ones that survive better, are the ones that look more like the toxic nudibranchs. So it's this sort of chase away evolution effect where they're trying to, one's trying to get away from the other and the other one's trying to catch up to the initial one. And so it just generates this linear evolution that pushes nudibranchs into these crazy shapes of forms. Yeah, uh, so it just drives the like intense color that like in this ever never ending race to get more and more colorful or more and more crazy kind of looking. Yeah, they're just always trying to outcompete each other, more and more ridiculous. And if if you are a diver and you see a nudie bank, this mimicry ring that we get in Australia is indicated by red or orange spots. So there's lots of nudie banks that are mostly white with big red or orange spots, and that's. The, these nudibranchs are all in that mimicry ring. There's only a handful of them that are actually toxic. A lot of them are chasing away evolution, pushing it by uh, mimicking the ones that are toxic. Wow. That's so cool. And so you just actually reminded me with the like word ring. So how nudibranchs actually reproduce. Because sometimes, because nudibranchs are hermaphroditic, so they don't have a sex, but they kind of mate with each other, like, but they can also mate in kind of rings have you you've come across that? Yeah, so nudibranchs, like you said, hermaphrodites, so they have both boy and girl parts, but mating with yourself is like cloning. It doesn't really go too well, makes your offspring really um, poorly adapted. So uh, nudibranchs essentially share their uh, gametes with each other. I'll give you mine if you give me yours sort of thing. But then if you add a few extra nudibranchs to that, they can all share together in sort of a circular fashion you get these big mating aggregations what happens is they share their gametes and then each go off and lay what's called an egg ribbon now these really pretty spiral well essentially ribbons of eggs that you get on the on the reef and usually they have the same toxic or stinging properties that their parents do so if you see bright blue one laid by glaucus don't touch it it'll It'll sting, even if it's just a clutch of eggs. Or you'll get the toxic chemicals from the sponge or whatever the, the nudibranch eats initially, which gives those the babies that leg up when they're so first the babies, born. So they, they're already born with... Because I've seen a few really small like eggs really close up. So, and they are colourful, as you said. So they're born not only with the colour, but with toxins as well in them. Yeah, so the Verco's nudibranch that we get in Melbourne really commonly, that bright yellow and blue one, eats that orange sponge and some of the acidians. And that's why you see bright orange eggs is because they've taken that pigment and put it straight into their egg ribbon to help them A, blend in and B, be slightly toxic. And so just for anyone who hasn't seen a nudibranch before, they don't have eyes and they are a slug, so they just crawl. But they use their rhinophores to kind of smell each other, don't they? Yeah, so, well, some nudibranchs actually do have eyes. Well, not complex eyes as we're familiar with. They have photosensitive pits, which is really basic proto-eyes, usually found at the base of their, their rhinophores. Right at the bottom, it's just a little black dot. And it means that they can tell the difference between day and night or if something is swimming directly overhead. They can't actually form very complex images. But their main way of sensing the environment, yeah, is these big rhinophores, which look like giant rabbit ears, if you've ever seen a nudibranch. Got these cool fold structures on them, and it's all about detecting chemicals in the water. So it's a sense of smell. I guess the best way to put it is smell of vision. They can 
sense the world around them by smell and actually piece together a spatial understanding of what's around them. But having said that though, if you're a nudibranch and you're small and a slug, it's very hard to find other nudibranch when it comes time to reproduce. So we get this thing called tailing behavior where nudibranchs that aren't ready to reproduce yet bump into another member of their own species. They find them by smell or whatever. And rather than going their separate ways until they're ready, they think this might be the only nudibranch that I ever see for the rest of my life. So I'm going to stay with them. And so one will latch onto the tail of the other and they'll follow each other around in sort of a conga line fashion until they're ready to reproduce. And sometimes these chains can get up to five, six, a dozen nudibranchs long if they're common enough in the area. It's this great big long line of slugs. And they're all just following the this, this smell of the one in front of them, which is really cool. Wow. And I guess the one in front of them is trying to kind of not follow the smell and is kind of trying to run away, isn't it? Well, yeah, the one at front, it's their job to find food for the rest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. So what, like, so actually talking about the eye, I actually noticed the eye for the first time the other day. And it was because like I got into a bit of underwater photography and like usually you're like very conscious about shining a light on an animal. And I was like, oh, well, it's nudibranchs. I can't see. I'll just shine my torch on it so I can get a good photo. And then it moved away from the torch continuously. And I was like, how, how is this happening? And then, yeah, now you've said about the eye, I'm like totally understanding it's um, crazy escape from my torch. Yeah, so they, they, it wouldn't be able to say, oh, that's a, that's a torch or even pinpoint where the light was. It's just sort of swinging its head going, oh, there's light that way. And there's not light that way. So I'll go to the not light side and just move away from you. They are, however, a photographer's dream, macro photographer's dream, these little animals, because they are so bright. And because lots of them are toxic, they just come out and sit right for the camera. They're not particularly shy. Yeah, so you can really practice. I, I found getting into photography myself, Nudibranchs were the best for practicing macro photography. So you could get your settings right, get comfortable with your camera for later on when you're photographing something that might move away like a shrimp or a crab or a pipefish that are notoriously difficult. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, and so like, I just have to like clarify macro because for us, like people who like do a lot of underwater photography, macro, macro, macro. But I spoke to someone the other day and they're like, what do you mean macro? Isn't macro large? You're like, well, yeah, but in the sense of underwater photography, it means small I believe because it's like the lens is causing a small image to be big. Yeah. So it means macro by taking something little and making it big. It's almost like an oxymoron. (laughs) (laughs) If you're an underwater photographer, if you want to do a bit of underwater photography or you just want to go spot nudibranchs, what's the best way and what kind of habitat would you look at? And where would you start? Even if you're on the Barrier Reef or if you're in Melbourne or if you're just, you know, out somewhere tropical. So the best place to find nudibranchs is actually somewhere disturbed somewhere that's not pristine. If you're in a pristine environment, the nudibranchs will be very good at hiding. You won't see them. I'm currently living up in Townsville and on the GBR going out to some of the most pristine reefs, you'd be lucky to see one or two nudibranchs on a dive. However, you go somewhere that's been disturbed, like a pier or a jetty or somewhere that's had a big bleaching event and lots of the corals died off, is that's where you find your nudibranchs. You also get slightly higher diversity on the seafloor or the... Uh, substrate so the rock the pier whatever the physical structure is get slightly higher diversity because once the corals die off up here that's when you get lots more algae acidians and sponges growing which is bad for fish life but it's 
great for nudie brain. Certainly somewhere like Melbourne, just go down to your local pier or jetty. You don't have to scuba dive to see nudie branks. I see most of mine snorkeling. They come right up to the uh, surface of the water. You just have to get your eye in to spot them. If you are keen to go out and see them and you've never seen them before, best thing to do is find yourself someone who knows how to spot nudie branks. It's that classic example of you just swim straight past them until someone points one out to you and then all of a sudden you see them everywhere. It's one of the addictive things about finding new species. I, being a nudie nerd, I catalog all the species that I find and photograph. And just last Wednesday, I hit my 150th species photographed, which is a proud moment for me. But once you, I find that once I've seen one species, suddenly I see them all the time, even though I might have gone a decade of diving without seeing them ever. They were there. I just swam past them, but then you see them that one time and suddenly you can find them pretty reliably. There's some really good dive sites for nudibranchs around Australia, particularly the East Coast. In Melbourne, your best bet is Blegarry Pier. It's pretty much become one of Melbourne's most popular dive sites and the traffic is getting insane under that pier. You know, scuba divers have to wait their turn to keep swimming because there's so many people there. But Still going to plug it just because for everything else under Blegari, you can see somewhere else. But the nudie ranks there are just next level nudie ranks. During the last Seasug census I did down there, just on snorkel, I found 28 species. Wow. How many have been recorded at Blegari? Like over 100 now, haven't they? Well, last time I checked, it was 170, but I'm fairly certain that number has gone way higher than that. Other places to see nudie ranks around the state. Or country. The Gippsland Lakes is apparently a really good spot. I've never never done it, but uh, apparently it's, it's a really good spot for them. Uh, New South Wales, there's some really, really good nudibranch sites because they have the East Australian current. So during summer, the current warms up, gets a little bit stronger, brings down tropical nudibranchs. They only survive as long as summer's around. They die off once the water temperature drops drops down again. But for that March, April period, the diversity is insane. There's a spot in Bermagui, south coast of New South Wales, called the Blue Pool. It's a man-made pool cut into the cliff, gets flushed by the ocean all the time, and it sits just on the edge of a gyre uh, that comes off the East Australian current. Sometimes it flows clockwise, sometimes it flows anti-clockwise, and which way it's spinning depends on what nudie ranks you see. So if it's going clockwise, you get all the temperate species, so the stuff that we're familiar with in Melbourne. But if it's flowing anti-clockwise, all of a sudden the pool is full of tropical nudie ranks. It's a really easy dive, not even a dive, you just snorkel it, but you can see dozens and dozens of them. The, the walls of this pool are covered in nudie ranks. And then another spot that is really good is Nelson Bay up in northern New South Wales, which is where pretty much where the sea slug census started up that end of New South Wales. And Nelson Bay is a great spot. It gets really strong currents going in and out every day. You can only diet it on slack tide. You get all the tropical species and all the temperate species co-occurring. It's a great place to find them. And there's lots of nudie enthusiasts up there. If you went into the dive shop and said, does anyone want to come looking for nudie branks with me? Guaranteed someone will be like, yeah, I'll come. I'll guide you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, when people start diving, that's one of the first things that really gets them passionate about the water, I find, is they're like, yeah, I just want to see like more and more nudibranchs. They become kind of addictive. What is your favourite? If you had to pick one nudibranch, what would be your favourite one? Or what, like, describe your favourite one, what it looks like. See, that's like choosing between children. 
<laughs> even even if even if I did have a favourite, I'd be offending the other ones. <laughs> nah, it's really hard to pick. My favourite nudie rank is the one I haven't seen yet. It's uh, always the one I haven't seen yet. There's a couple that are on my bucket list that I need need to seek out and find. But yeah, it's always the one I haven't seen yet. If I spot a new nudie rank for that day, it's my favourite. Ah, oh, cool. Cool. I think, like, I discovered one a couple of weeks ago that is, like, and it's probably the same as you, like, you find a new one and that's your favourite one for that period. And it, like, had these, like, kind of tentacles on it, all these, like, curly bits on it. And each one was filled with blue and orange that seemed to sparkle like a crystal. It was just the crate. I think it had a pink body, but, yeah, and these three or four distinct bushes. Have you come across that one before? I think it sounds like really sort of bright orange and blue. Yeah, Sounds like the, oh, I've got a butcher in the name, Australis or Nata or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's um, it. That's it. Yeah. It's, that's a beautiful one. And we're very lucky in Melbourne with that. It occurs right down the East Coast. So right from pretty much Queensland all the way down to Melbourne and Tasmania. Except the further north you go, the less attractive it is. So that spot, Nelson Bay, I've seen them there, but they're a very grey and white nudibranch. They don't have those beautiful colours and they're quite small. Whereas you get down to Melbourne and that nudibranch is, well, gets up to like five centimetres long, which is pretty huge for a nudibranch. And it is the most iridescent nudibranch you can find. Like, Gary, it's stunning. My little victory when I was in Nelson Bay last time, someone said, oh, you know, I found this nudibranch. And I was like, oh, that's a bit dull. And they're like, what do you mean? That's what they, they all look like. I cracked out a photo. And suddenly Melbourne was the envy of all the Nelson Bay divers. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of our nudibranch episode. Thanks very much, Jack, for being on. And if anyone wants to see some of Jack's nudibranch photos or anything like that, where should we go? Oh, well, thanks for having me on and letting me rabbit on about nudibranchs. I can talk for hours about these tiny little sea slugs. Uh, I do have an Instagram. It's called Meet Me Underwater and Facebook page under the same name. On Facebook, I try to do a nudie Tuesday. I'm doing my best to get all 150 species up. Unfortunately, I seem to be accumulating new species faster than I can post them. But every Tuesday, I do a nudie Tuesday, put up a new new species with a little fact about that one that particular one awesome all right well i'm definitely going to pay a lot of attention to your instagram on tuesdays from now on sea creatures podcast is hosted produced and edited by myself matt testoni you can see more of my photography on instagram matt underscore testoni underscore photography and my webpage mtunderwatermedia.com if you like the podcast please subscribe leave review and visit our patreon account patreon.com slash sea creatures podcast also, we have two new Patreons to thank at the Sea Creatures support level. Amanda Hilditch from Mornington Seaglass and Thomas Rawlinson. Thank you very much for supporting the show. Production assistance by Georgia McGrath and music by Dan Musil and his super, super cool slide guitar. Tune in next time to hear marine biologist Fung Chaco talk all about Mola Mola or the sunfish. Also, finally, we have a joke. What do a group of whales listen to? A podcast. This has been the Sea Creatures Podcast. Over and out. <laughs>